Welcome to the Race and Medicine Roundtable hosted by the New England Journal of Medicine. My name is Michelle Evans. I am the Deputy Scientific Director at the National Institute on Aging. I will serve as the moderator today. In addition, I'm a member of the NEJM editorial board. I'm joined today by several esteemed panelists, uh, Dr. Joseph Graves, Dr. Ruth Shim, Dr. Sarah Tishkoff, and Dr. Wynne Williams. My name is Joseph Graves, Jr. I am a professor of biological sciences at North Carolina A&T State University. Uh, my research concerns the genomics of adaptation, as well as biological and social conceptions of race um, in humans. Hi, everyone. My name is Ruth Shim. I am the Luke and Grace Kim Professor in Cultural Psychiatry at the University of California at Davis. I'm also the Associate Dean of Diverse and Inclusive Education at the University of California at Davis in the School of Medicine. My background relates to structural racism as it relates to mental health um, and outcomes of racism and the impact on mental health. Hello, my name is Sarah Tishkoff. I'm a professor in the departments of genetics and biology at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm also the director of the Center for Global Genomics and Health Equity at the University of Pennsylvania. My research focuses on studies of human population genetic diversity with a focus on Africa. I study human evolutionary history in Africa and the genetic basis of both normal variable traits as well as disease risk with an emphasis on people of African ancestry. Hello, my name is Dr. Wynne Williams. I'm the Associate Chief of the Division of Nephrology at Massachusetts General Hospital and an Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. I'm also the founding director of the Center for Diversity and Inclusion at MGH and also a deputy editor at the New England Journal of Medicine. My research interests are health disparities in transplantation and molecular biomarkers in kidney transplantation and end-stage renal disease. Medicine and healthcare are parts of U.S. society, as we're all aware, and therefore are affected by and contribute to structural racism that thwarts equal treatment, as well as equal educational and professional opportunities in medicine. It also thwarts us as a nation achieving health equity. This is, as you all know, is a multi-level problem that will require a strategic examination by all stakeholders in medicine and healthcare and in the biomedical research enterprise. Today's discussion will focus on the use of race in medicine and its perceived role in disease and treatment. Discussions like this may be a critical first step in acknowledging how structural racism functions in healthcare and perhaps can inform our efforts to dismantle healthcare inequities. I think we all feel that the goal is to find the best path forward to health equity, but we have to realize that this path may be envisioned differently by different constituencies. And there are many questions that, that need to be asked and answered, and, and they include exactly what is race and how should it be used in medicine and biomedical research? Is race a disease indicator or a risk factor that should be considered in diagnosis and treatment? And as most people say, well, race is really a social construct and not a biologic one. So if that's true, then what is the basis for including race adjustments in clinical algorithms, particularly when they may in fact increase disparities in health or healthcare? Is it possible that we should abandon these adjustments? How can clinicians more specifically evaluate the influence of social determinants of health for which race is often incorrectly used as a proxy? Everyone is aware of the complex intersectional 
relationships that exist between education, income, occupation, housing, racial identity, and ethnic identity, and genetic ancestry. However, there is really no genetic evidence that supports the existence of discrete racial groups. But in some cases, I think it's clear to most of us that racial categories sometimes do correlate to some extent with genetic ancestry. Unfortunately, I think we all agree that we haven't learned everything that genetic variation has to teach us about disease and disease risk. And in large part, that's because we haven't been as successful as I think many of us would have liked in terms of being very inclusive in the populations that we have engaged in genetic studies on. So therefore, when we use these self-identified ethnic and racial categories, I mean, it's, it's possible that they're not the best surrogates for genomic variation and are at best imprecise. So, what, what is it that we as physicians, we as biomedical researchers should do while at least we try to improve our genomic cohorts to perhaps give us a better handle on genetic variation? Should medicine and biomedical researchers just stop using race as a proxy for genetic variation? I think everyone's goal is to improve health and facilitate health equity we need to find a common ground upon which to build. And that's probably the most important reason for us to have this discussion today. So let's open the discussion with some very basic questions. To what extent is race a social construct? Entirely? And if it's entirely a social construct, then do we continue to use that construct? What are the downsides of that? And so perhaps I can turn to you, Dr. Graves, to begin the discussion with an answer to that question. From my perspective, there are two race concepts that are often conflated by both people in the lay public, but also by professionals. The first is the biological conception of race which has a very long history in the study of biology, going back at least to the fifth century BCE, when naturalists began to study the variation in the organisms around them. Um, it moved through a series of criteria that were initially based upon special creationist ideas, um, starting with simply the physical differences between organisms. And, and when I say organisms, I mean all organisms, not just people. Um, and then later on, when Linnaeus writes his Systema Naturae in 1735, the concept of the variation was already established within people studying nature. It is notable that Linnaeus does not talk about human varieties until a 10th edition of the book, which is published in 1758. Um, and this, I argue, is associated with the onset of the social definitions of race that are deeply connected to colonialism and chattel slavery. Um, later on in the 19th century, Luis Agassiz presents us with the zones of creation in which he felt there had been special acts of creation for different regions around the globe, including different species of human beings, and this was called polygenism. However, after the publication of The Origin of Species in 1859, the classification of human beings moves towards an evolutionary foundation. And in the early 20th century, the definition of races begin to be associated with the frequency of specific genetic variants in those groups. And so by the time that Adodius Dobzhansky writes genetics and the origin of species, um, he defines races simply as being different frequencies of genetic variants, whether they be inversions or specific um, alleles. And by Dobzhansky's definition, 
there would have been many, many more races in the human species than are defined by our social conventions. Now, moving forward, after really the culmination of the what we call the neo-Darwinian synthesis, which unites um, Mendelian genetics and evolutionary theory, we come up with more sophisticated ways of examining the variation within populations. And when we do that, we really come to the conclusion that there is no non-arbitrary way to apportion human populations into so-called biological races. And so I argue that in fact, we have no biological races within the human species. And in fact, the, the races that, that we recognize um, in society and, and in, unfortunately in biomedical research and clinical practice are socially defined groups. Now the difference between the social definition of race and the long um, tradition of biological classification of variation is that this social definition is associated always with systems of social hierarchy and can be arbitrary. They're historically and culturally contextual. And so what counts as race in Brazil does not count as race in the United States or in the UK or in China. And so here's where the problem lies, because while the science, I think, of human biological variation has told, told us some very clear stories, that has not been translated into the lay public and unfortunately not into the medical community as well. That's an excellent overview, Dr. Graves. Thank you. Dr. Tishkoff, would you like to add to that? I think that we have to be uh, very careful about classifying populations using phrases that imply a biological basis to race. So one of the ones I hate the most is Caucasian. I think that should just be banned. It should be banned from the literature. It should be banned from uh, the clinic. Because when people use that, it implies a biological classification of race. So the way we describe classifications of people, refer to groups of people, uh, can have an important impact. And I think that part of the problem has been that historically, as Dr. Graves pointed out, there's been a mixture of biological and cultural definitions of race with people's personal um, cultural beliefs being put imposed on top of that, often looking at so-called races in a hierarchical perspective. And so we clearly do need to move away from that. Um, at the same time, we cannot ignore that genetic diversity exists. However, the diversity that we see amongst the entire human uh, species, all human populations, is relatively small between populations compared to within populations. So generally we see somewhere around 10% of the variation being between populations um, and around 90% being within populations. And if we look at the level of the entire genome, we're greater than 99.99% similar. And this reflects a relatively recent African origin of all modern humans. The modern human species evolved in Africa within the past 300,000 years or so. And it was only in the past 50 to 80,000 years or so that relatively small numbers of people, could have been in the hundreds to thousands, migrated out of Africa, giving rise to populations across the globe. So because of that demographic history, it shapes the pattern of variation that we see in modern populations. We see more variation in Africa compared to anywhere else in the globe, not just within populations, but between populations. And this should eliminate any idea of an African race because we see more variation between different groups in Africa from Eastern and Western and Central and Southern Africa than we may see across the globe. And so, um, yeah, so I think the, the point is that we share quite a bit more than we differ, but we can't ignore that there are differences and those result from our demographic history, population history, and adaptation to different environments. So natural selection can sometimes cause random mutations that uh, may be associated with risk for disease to rise to high frequency. So we can't ignore that either. And we have to, you know, one of the things we should discuss is what's the best way to take that into account, not ignore it, but not classify people as biological races. 
So Dr. Shim, so how, how do we, I think, get people to, to understand how do we use race in the context of social determinants of health in the United States? Because what, what's happened is it's in medicine, particularly, it's sort of a proxy for these social determinants. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, it's interesting because it is a proxy, and, and I would argue it's not a very good proxy. It's a very imprecise proxy. And in a in a space where in within medicine we try to be as precise as possible. Um, and, and so I very much appreciate Dr. Graves um, giving us this history of uh, of uh, of the establishing of, of racial categories. What was so important about that is that is history that is typically not taught. So um, uh, I did not learn anything like that in medical school. Um, I, had to, I had to do additional self-study in order to understand that, that history that, that, that Dr. Graves walked us all through. And the average physician, the average practitioner does not get that, that information at all in any type of educational setting. And, and so we are left with this social construct, which has huge implications on the health and outcomes of people because we know that social determinants have huge implications on health. We know that the majority of the differences that we see in outcomes um, the inequities that we see around health have to do with social determinants. And so this social construct, this huge social construct and political construct of race is probably the greatest of all of these social determinants in that it is driving a lot of, it, it is the hierarchy that is driving a lot of uh, the negative outcomes and the inequities that we see. So, so then the question becomes, how do we convince providers, one, that we're saying that race is not biological, but yet it's still extremely significant because of the way that it has been constructed and because of the significance of oppression and hierarchy and how that impacts health and how that leads to bad health. So I don't really have an answer, unfortunately, but I definitely think that we have to start really zoning in on what um, what is relevant, which is the fact that our social construction of race has led to uh, deep inequities because of oppression, because, because of hierarchy, but not because necessarily of biological or genetic differences between, between populations. So Dr. Williams, I think Dr. Shim sort of has teed up the ball for us to discuss understanding structural racism in healthcare. And it operates clearly on many, many levels. Uh, how, how do you think we've gotten to the place where we are in terms of health inequities? Is it solely physician-based or is it their uh, physicians are just members of society and just bring that to their interactions with patients. Structural racism, in my mind, refers to the mechanisms in which our society fosters racial discrimination through systems of, uh, of a variety of resources that should be uh, equal and have equal access to all, including housing, including education, employment, earnings, benefits, uh, access to banking and credit, uh, media access, healthcare uh, is one, and even I think, and more importantly, the criminal justice system that uh, reinforces discriminatory uh, beliefs, um, values, and uh, distribution of resources. And I think um, this uh, historically has uh, developed in a number of different ways in terms of uh, structures of these kinds of disparities that are, I think, hardwired now in many sectors of our, um, our society. Uh, but one historic reality has been redlining, for example, uh, where uh, there were structures that were placed, put in place in the 30s and 40s to systematically deny uh, African-Americans and other ethnic uh, minorities access to mortgages, um, property ownership, and generational development of uh, equity and wealth uh, on that basis. This has led to um, substantial wealth 
uh, disparity in minority communities that uh, are um, extant uh, to this day. And according to a 2015 report from the Boston Federal Reserve entitled um, The Color of Wealth, white households in the Boston metropolitan area were noted to have a median net worth of about a quarter of a million dollars, over $247,000, while black households had a median net worth of just $8, really deep um, wealth inequity between these uh, two communities. This uh, differential in wealth has led to deep substantive inequities in communities such that if you look at results of redlining uh, in the 1930s and 40s, between 1945 and 1959, African Americans received less than 2% of all federally insured uh, home loans. And so I think that makes a difference in terms of access to resources uh, and even health equity uh, as it translates uh, to the current day. Well, well, do you think that that is an example of sort of race being viewed as a proxy for social status? You know, in a 2009 paper by Vince Bonham, where they asked doctors whether or not they thought race was important in clinical diagnosis or management, they both black and white doctors thought that race was an important factor. But when asked, well, how is it that race matters in medicine, they sort of were amorphous in their responses. Some thought that race equals cultural practices, that because it is diet, physical activity, care-seeking behavior. Others thought that racial status, income, or neighborhood, as you're pointing out, may be reflected in race as well as educational um, achievement, or others thought that race was in fact a proxy for genetic makeup. So, you know, so I think the, 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 the material that you're presenting certainly suggests that that link, that race is, uh, is a surrogate for marginalization and lack of access to capital, education, and occupation, then reflects on physicians who then feel that, well, this is one of the things that's making people ill and therefore race does exist. The effect of residential segregation, uh, for example, in my field on kidney health outcomes has been fairly well documented. So if you look at, there's an analysis in the United States um, um, uh, RDS registry looking at patients uh, initiating hemodialysis between 2000 and 2008. And that study found that um, among Black Americans exclusively, residents in highly racial, racially segregated areas was associated with an increased mortality. And I think the effect of structural racism uh, can be ob- observed across a number of different parameters. If you look at the U.S. food system, greater availability of healthy foods has been noted predominantly in white and higher income na- neighborhoods. This can compose significant challenges for individuals with diet-sensitive health conditions such as diabetes, hypertension, and chronic uh, kidney disease. And so this, I think this dovetails, too, in terms of environmental exposure, such as lead and lead in our water systems and air pollutants, uh, where geographically um, minority communities, disadvantaged communities, are disproportionately exposed uh, to these environmental um, disasters. You know, while scholars such as ourselves know full well the the gravity and, and the immense amount of the racial wealth disparity in the United States, the vast majority of Americans who are not associated with sociology departments do not understand this huge difference. And in fact, a recent paper uh, published in a social psychology journal actually gave white Americans an opportunity to rate what they thought the wealth disparity difference was. And so they did a series of experiments and found that that the vast majority of white Americans rated the wealth disparity as essentially nine tenths, or or black Americans were, you know, 10% less wealthy than white Americans. And then they revealed the actual numbers, which nationally it's about one tenth. 
They reveal the actual numbers. And, and instead of the, the, the white participants in the study, you know, re-examining what they thought about the present, they then re-examined what they thought about the past and concluded, well, then I guess the past wasn't so bad that, that slavery and Jim Crow, you know, must not have been that terrible. And so instead of coming to a you know, logical conclusion that there's this long historic wealth disparity in the United States, and that in fact might have you know, real social <laughs> consequences, they came to the exact opposite conclusion. You would think that when presented with this data, the average person could take it and make a reasonable assumption based on that data as Dr. Graves um, pointed out, they, they often don't. And what ends up happening, unfortunately, what we see a lot is that with this information, with even the, the, the data on redlining and the data on residential segregation and the data on all of the discrimination, the next logical step that many healthcare professionals make in their mind is not oh, there must be these huge structural racist forces that are causing these differences. They make this leap to, there must be some sort of intrinsic biological difference between these populations that explains why you see these differences. And that is the piece that we have not done a good job of educating people on what is actually driving these differences. And so, and there is a significant number of people that are very, um, entrenched in the belief that these are in fact biological or genetic or, or some type of intrinsic uh, differences that are causing these huge differences. So when we think about one, part of that has to do with the existing workforce. Part of that has to do with the fact that medicine unfortunately has a terrible history of teaching racist ideology around health. And so uh, we have, I was taught, um, and I went to a, a great medical school, but I was taught um, racist assumptions about why people had different outcomes. Um, these are the things that are passed down from generation to generation historically. And so the workforce being what it is today, it takes, un it takes until somebody is sitting in that, in that spot who is of, this, uh, of that race, it, it, it took me sitting in my medical school classroom thinking, well, they're saying that I'm inferior. They're saying that I'm biologically somehow less than. Is that true? Is, is, that, is that really the case? Or do I need to do a little bit more explanation, exploration on this? And so, so the work of creating a diverse workforce is so critical because we need to have people question the way we've been teaching uh, the scientific conclusions that we draw based on um, when we do research and when we do studies, we need to uh, have all of this be questioned. I'm very excited because um, what I'm noticing is that we're seeing the glimpses of a new workforce, a much more diverse workforce, at least in medical education, that is really questioning and, and asking their professors, wait a minute, you say that there's this difference um, in outcomes by race, what's driving that difference? Um, and not accepting just, oh, it's just a difference. We don't really know why. Many of your viewers will, will be familiar with the paper that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2016 that came out of the University of Virginia's medical school. And it asked first year, second year, third year, and, and resident um, physicians questions about um, biological variation associated with very, as various clinical attributes of people and the number of false conceptions about black and white differences were, were amazing. And, and, I, and I'll just read a few um, that, in, again, for example, you all probably heard about black nerve endings less sensitive than whites. Well, 12.7% of first-year med students thought that. 19.4% of second-year med students thought that. Now, they dealt with this effectively by the third year, and, and the number went to 0%. But the residents still were 14.3% of them believed that Black nerve endings were, were less sensitive than white. And, and there were a number of these, these errors. 
including ones which the authors themselves got wrong because I reviewed the paper and I said, wait a minute, these things aren't true either. And so they thought they were true. So in, in that sense, we have a lot of work to do. And, and I'll reveal to you, the, your viewers that I'm actually a paid consultant for Elsevier. And I'm one of the people who's working on the 11th edition of Robin's Basic Pathology to remove all of these incorrect claims about human beings associated with race. And, and we've been doing a lot of work because we've had to remove a lot of material. So we're hoping that this 11th edition, which is widely used around the country and around the world, will be a, a resource um, that will help with regard to these ongoing misconceptions about human biological variation. So Dr. Tishkoff, as a biologist, uh, as a biologist and uh, geneticist, where do we go from here? What do we need to have a refix or a reset on at the level of medical education, at graduate school education? Uh, and how best can biomedical researchers communicate to the public that there really is no race. I do believe that all medical students should have a basic understanding of population genetics. I think they should understand what the nature is of genetic diversity within and between populations. And when they better understand that, they will better understand that there are not these discrete differences that correspond with biological concepts of race. So first they need to have a better understanding of that. Um, at the same time, I think that we can't ignore, as I said, that genetic differences do exist at the individual level and at a broader population level, and that there can be differences in disease risk that may have a genetic um, basis or there may be genetic risk factors. However, there's no doubt that um, social inequity, systemic racism is having perhaps the major impact on health inequities but that's not in health disparities, but that's not to say that there aren't genetic risk factors as well. And that one of the most challenging things is to distinguish the interaction of genetic and environmental social factors that are influencing disease risk. So I, I would also argue that we can't ignore diversity. I think that actually would do harm as well if we ignored that. And in regards to the need to include a more diverse workforce, we also need to include more diversity in biomedical research and in terms of subjects. So in the area of genomics, for example, um, we uh, wrote a perspective a couple of years ago and showed that um, if you look at all of the genome-wide association studies that were done as of 2019, uh, around 80% of the individuals included in those studies were of European ancestry. Um, only around 2% were of African ancestry, about 1% were of uh, Hispanic ancestry, Native American ancestry, less than 1% everybody else. And I should also say 10% East Asian. Um, and so that's going to also lead to disparities because we're going to be missing important information. Dr. Williams, something I wanted to ask you about was um, you mentioned differences um, in terms of risk for kidney disease. Now, we also know that APOL1, that variants of APOL1 have been found that play a role in risk for disease in people of West African ancestry. And it's been shown in a beautiful paper that was done um, that uh, the variants that are associated with risk for disease may have become common in some parts of West Africa because they were protective against uh, trypanosomes, which can cause sleeping sickness. So in that respect, genetic ancestry could be important uh, to know as well. And I'm wondering about your thoughts about that. I, I think it's extremely informative. I think it's a great example of why um, you can, in a sense, throw the baby out with the bathwater. And what I mean by that is uh, it is one thing to say that race is a social construct, but there are genetic ancestral markers that can inform uh, really potently about disease expression in particular uh, ethnic minority groups. And in your example, 
variation around G1 and G2 at the APOL1 locus does confer, confer an increased risk for chronic kidney disease and even rapid progression to end-stage renal disease in about 12 to 13 percent of African Americans who are homozygous for those variants. Now, that's an important area in kidney disease to really delve into and explore without uh, the idea that somehow this is a racialized construct. It happens to be uh, evident that uh, those variants rose quickly to na in natural selection because they were protective against African sleeping sickness, and it warrants, uh, I think, um, a rigorous study. And Dr. Evans, again, if I can speak to that. I mean, I think that the real question that Dr. Chishkoff has identified is the complexity of gene by environment interactions with regard to how genetic variants, particularly in new environments, may predispose individuals to disease. Now, I, I happen to, to be you know, on the executive board of the International Society for Evolution, Medicine, and Public Health, and we approach disease from an evolutionary lens. And one of the major factors we see contributing to disease in modern human populations is environmental mismatch. An environmental mismatch can occur in a number of ways. Some of the obvious ways are um, the amount of food that we currently have, and particularly high caloric content food that we didn't have when we evolved in Africa. But then there are also other aspects of environmental mismatch that aren't really well understood. And this is what Dr. Shim was talking about earlier with regard to the impact of structural racism and the neural endocrine effects that it has on human beings. And so, you know, while it would seem that, you know, the, the just so story of renal end stage disease is natural selection, antitrypanosome, you know, put it in the absence of trypanosomes, it, it contributes to end-stage renal disease. But we actually don't know that that's the reason that it contributes to end-stage renal disease. For example, in, in a racially equitable society, the variant may have absolutely no impact on end-stage renal disease. And so what right, I It may be the interaction with poverty because in our yeah. own work, when we look at chronic kidney disease, in our study, we, we didn't find the difference between blacks and whites until we did the univariate analysis looking at poverty. And poverty was a driver of severe kidney disease, chronic kidney disease in African-Americans, but not in whites. So poverty had an important virulence factor. Was it related to AP, uh, APOL1? Not probably, but we did find interactions with obesity, with food insecurity, with housing insecurity, as well as illicit drug use, all of which are social factors that are driving disease. So uh, yeah, so it, it's, I think what Dr. Tishkoff has said is, is so important. And I think that's one of the reasons that we have a difficulty in communicating this, not only to the, the lay public, but also even within the healthcare provider community is because it's a complex message. Uh, and how do we tailor it so that people understand this, these complex intersectional relationships? Because we need to be assessing interactions, race in the context of the environment of the social determinants of health is driving disease. And, and also is driving disease in low SES whites. But that's another very understudied group of people. And one of the things that I, I wanna get across um, to the listeners is what is the um, research protocol that's going to allow us to be able to dissect the complex interactions of genetics and environment. In fact, that's the very focus of my research. It's one of the big questions that the NSF funds, you know, the genotype phenotype map. And quite frankly, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to insult anyone. The level of understanding of this complex question in biomedical research is very low. And there is a real need to, you know, move the research protocols to a level to where they can actually dissect and falsify hypotheses about genetic and environmental influences, which given the way things are currently being done, they simply cannot do. 
one of the reasons why I teach evolutionary medicine um, in our graduate program at North Carolina A&T, and I've taught it at some medical schools around the country, but I really think that one solution to this would be a wider adoption of evolutionary medicine within medical and pre-medical curriculum. So are there better proxies for social determinants, race, genetic ancestry? How, how do we make our research protocols better? One way is to include those very target po targeted populations that we're concerned about. So uh, you know this well, um, uh, Dr. Evans, uh, minority folk are underrepresented in virtually all uh, randomized clinical trials across the, the spectrum. Uh, that's one thing we want to try and address, as you know, policy-wise, uh, uh, but it, it the, the dearth of of minority participants in clinical trials is a real problem in terms of di discerning disease mechanism and therapy. And I, I would just like to add to that, that, you know, it, it feels to me that everything always comes back, unfortunately, to structural racism, because one of the reasons we have this diverse, uh, di this dearth of uh, minoritized populations um, in research and that we don't have um, adequate samples or the right amount of participants has everything to do with the historical nature of how racist experiments have been um, towards minoritized populations um, since since the beginning of time. And so and so, you know, I, I'm glad that I'm I'm hearing the medical community move towards um, trying to establish uh, and focus on trust and establish trust, um, but it also requires a, a complete shift in um, the focus and the priorities of researchers. I, th I think that um, research has been traditionally a much more exploitative process um, and much more about um, funding and getting funding and, and what, what funding is interesting and, and how many research dollars are you gonna get for what you study. And, and these questions have not been supported adequately in the past and are not currently supported. Um, by funds, so so we don't get to see um, the investment in asking these, these questions and answering them because we don't see a, a commissurate um, uh, investment in 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 funding these these questions and really trying to get to the bottom of this. And there's also not enough investment in terms of industry, I would say, um, looking at diversity. So, for example, if um, people are developing uh, therapeutic treatments, if they're just looking at people of European ancestry, that's not going to cut it. That's not going to um, benefit people of all diverse ancestries. So I think we need to be considering that as well. And in terms of um, Dr. Evans, you asked what might be the, a better proxy than race. I would argue that it depends on the question. So if we are interested in social determinants of health, race actually may be proper, the proper way to classify. Um, however, if we're interested in uh, genetic risk factors, typically ancestry is better. And certainly knowing as much as you can about an individual's ancestry is important because somebody may self-identify one way but you might find out that they had grandparents from different regions and most people have diverse ancestries. And um, one of the things we see in almost all human populations is admixture. And so the problem is that when people classify um, based on what we refer to in the population genetics world as global genetic ancestry, and what that can mean is for example, um, in the African-American community, people who have done genetic studies um, have shown that uh, people who self-identify as African-American would typically have on average 20% European ancestry, on average around 80% West African ancestry. That's an average. People can have from 0% European ancestry to perhaps 90% or more. And so when someone tries to determine a treatment based on these broad classifications, that can be problematic because even if there were genetic risk factors, and even if they did differ between groups of different ancestries, at any particular region of the genome, 
someone might have, you know, who self-identifies as African-American could have 100% European ancestry, 100% African ancestry, or a mixed ancestry. And so ultimately, the, what we want is more precision medicine. We want to understand individual genetic risk factors. But until we get to that point that everybody gets sequenced, and not only gets sequenced, but we actually understand what all that diversity is doing and how it's impacting disease, you may need some kind of a proxy. And maybe it just depends on what the question is. Yeah, and, and, and I would go even further because one of the things that I've had an opportunity to do while working on the revision of Robbins is I'm working very closely with a lot of practicing physicians and they question the use of proxies, period. So one would think that the only reason to have a proxy, at least from clinical practice, is in the emergency room where you need a quick, useful heuristic to try to figure out what, what, what's going on with this patient. But my physician colleagues are telling me that that's a really bad way to go and that you will often make mistakes, in fact, critical mistakes, which could cost the patient's life or some you know, serious harm. And so if proxies are not useful in the emergency room, then they're definitely not useful in biomedical research. We have plenty more opportunity to find out real answers to the environmental and genomic variations which are associated with the phenotype in question. And especially given, you know, again, what Dr. Tishkoff pointed out in terms of sequencing, sequencing is really cheap now compared to what it was even 10 years ago. And so the ability to do this, if, if you're doing, you know, human biomedical research, sequencing costs are not the issue with regard to studying the question. And so I, I question why people are, you know, adhering to this notion that you have to have these proxies instead of doing the real work to try to, you know, give us an accurate view of the phenotype, genotype to phenotype map. I don't see the utility of that anymore. So what do each of you see as the most promising route to dismantling structural racism in medicine? Uh, funding better research that asks some of these questions, that's one thing that's come up. Really working on the, the area of diversity in clinical trials, that's another where, but again, that's using people's self-identified race and ethnicity. Uh, making sure we are training students to understand population genetics, both at the undergraduate as well as at the medical school training level. Um, and then really trying to conceptualize how we go forward to evaluate patients. We've recently been talking about what's, what are we evaluating? when we say race, should we be taking a better social history so that we can understand the environmental factors that may be influencing disease because it's not race, it's race as an indicator of what the risk factors that are part of the life experience of that patient may be. But what are other things that we need to put on the table for consideration. So I see, uh, Michelle, you want us to go another hour, I guess. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think that what, what you're talking about really hits a lot of different levels in terms of really sort of how we conceptualize disparities in health uh, and healthcare. And so there are, there are, syst there are system level um, barriers there are provider level barriers, as you indicated, uh, and, and even patient level uh, barriers. And so I think if you look at these various tiers, if you look at the system, how uh, our healthcare systems are organized, um, they in, in and of themselves, in, in terms of sort of insurance products, for example, that are available to um, uh, vulnerable communities or communities that had lesser access to sort of high caliber uh, insurance products. That would be an organizational uh, impediment to ensuring uh, uh, equality and access to healthcare resources. And on the provider level, I think you're right. I think how we teach providers to communicate, 
our uh, students uh, of medicine and even faculty of medicine um, presently, their attitudes, their knowledge base, whether in fact they are culturally competent in the way they deliver messages to vulnerable populations, I think is really important as well. And then there are patient uh, issues that we've all uh, sort of hinted at, I think, during this um, this uh, roundtable that um, patients who are, for example, African-American patients rightfully have a, a large measure of distrust in, in structured systems of healthcare because if the benchmark, of course, is Tuskegee, where African-American men were uh, subject to the natural history of syphilis played out uh, in and those who are enrolled in that program without their knowledge. And so I think there's a deep distrust uh, of healthcare systems based on historical legacies of mistreatment. So those are various tiers, system, provider, and patient. And I think they all com converge when you look at the uh, demographic challenges of poverty and segregation, some of the social cultural norms we've been t discussing that lead to um, really a complicated, um, you know, outcome uh, that is disparate in terms of quality. You know, it's it's a really old study, but um, but McGinnis and colleagues um, published something in Health Affairs in 2002 that looked at um, determinants of health and their con contribution to premature death. And, you know, they they said that about 15% had to do with social circumstances, 15% of the, the, the contributors to premature death, 10% was healthcare, 5% was environmental exposure, 40% was behavioral patterns, um, and 30% was genetic predisposition. And, and so when I often teach my medical students, if, if you think about those breakdowns, um, about uh, behavioral patterns, environmental exposure, healthcare, social circumstances, all of these things are social determinants of health. Um, and so that's really 70% of the reason why people die early has to do with social determinants of health. And about 30% has to do with genetics or ancestry or, or predisposition that you have in your family history. Um, and so it's certainly not saying that we need to discount genetics, and we certainly do not need to do that. But if we're talking about how do we address inequities, how do we move towards uh, accomplishing health equity, I think we have to do a better job of teaching people to identify and address the social determinants. Um, and then race becomes... Um, the kind of the most salient of those social determinants. And so I think if we're going to get to a place where we uh, are better at achieving health equity, we have to teach everyone how structural racism shows up in medicine, how it affects um, outcomes in, in health, and what providers, what, what physicians and nurses and any healthcare providers can do to actually combat the negative forces of structural racism. So I, I'm in favor of education, and, and I think that we have to really do a, a much better job of making sure this information is spread, widespread and readily available to people. You know, there are examples of racialized medicine that are, I think, a part of, of, of structural racism as it plays out uh, um, in medical practice. And for example, one of the uh, examples that we see in chronic kidney disease is the example of the race correction for estimating glomerular filtration rates. The um, That's a marker performance of kidney disease. And I think all of us on the panel know that uh, over the past year, there's been a great hue and cry about um, how the equations that report a higher estimated uh, GFR, that kidney performance number, um, for black individuals, suggesting that they have better intrinsic function at a certain level of serum creatinine is a disadvantage that causes them to be categorized with higher levels of renal function, when in fact, uh, that that is not true on a measured um, basis. And that inequity in and of itself uh, is one that has led to a great deal of concern about redefining um, the utility of these equations and whether, in fact, this kind of misclassification uh, does deep disparity in terms of the access of uh, ethnic minorities, black patients in particular, to renal replacement services along a, a 
entire continuum, having um, best practices for renal replacement therapy, um, timely referral to nephrology, a timely uh, placement of dialysis access, timely referral for transplant evaluation uh, as a few examples. And I think addressing these vestiges of racialized constructs is important, uh, is an important mission for us as well. Uh, Dr. Tishkoff, so from the perspective of a, of a basic scientist, what do they need to contribute to this conversation? The biomedical research enterprise I think is critical as we move forward. So I think there needs to be more of an emphasis, both in regards of um, the, the funders and the researchers, that they must include more diversity in their research. And sometimes we as geneticists actually get penalized when we try to include diverse populations. When you're going through a review, a reviewer might say, well, your sample size isn't big enough because we can't get as big numbers as those who are looking at people of European ancestry. So for a genome-wide association study, you want tens of thousands of people. That might be challenging. Or they might say, well, your um, population is too genetically heterogeneous. That's going to be a problem. They need to change the attitude. It's got to be seen as a positive, and it doesn't matter how big the sample size is. It doesn't matter. It still adds important information. And then um, in addition, I think having more diversity in the workplace and in the workforce is going to be important because as we've heard so eloquently explained by Dr. Williams, there's a huge distrust among um, many groups that are underrepresented both you know, as subjects in biomedical research. And that's not gonna change until the people doing that research start looking more like they do and reflecting that diversity that exists in the US. So I think that's also going to be important. We aren't gonna be able to make reforms in medical training and clinical practice and biomedical research without addressing the, the elephant in the living room, which is structural racism in American society. Now that doesn't mean that you don't do all the things that my esteemed colleagues have outlined because I, I've been working on that. I've sent more African-American students to medical school and graduate school than my entire departments have over the course of my career, but that's not enough. Systems produce what they're designed to produce. So when you look at structural racism in the United States, it is designed to produce a deficit in African-American health and it's doing it really well. And it's done it really well for 300 plus years. And so therefore we have to address this elephant in the living room. If we really want a society in which everyone can live up to their genetic potential, then we must address these structural impediments to do that. And one of the simplest ways based upon, again, what Dr. Shim said earlier is universal healthcare. But that is one of the things that, that, that many um, constituents in the medical community and biomedical research are the most against. But far more than biomedical research, and again, I'm a scientist, I do scientific research, I think it's important. But if my goal is to eliminate health disparity, biomedical research isn't going to do it. Okay, universal health care would do it. A massive jobs program would do it. Child care for women would do it. And one will note that in the massive infrastructure bill that is sitting you know, in the Senate right now, the parts of infrastructure that dealt with helping human beings be healthier were the parts that they cut out. And so I would argue that if we want a society where people have an equal opportunity to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, then we must address structural racism. We absolutely must dismantle it. So I think this has been a very illuminating discussion. Uh, I think everyone has really brought to the forefront the complexity of the issue, the altitude to which we must climb to make progress. Uh, but rather than finding this polarizing, I find it invigorating in that it's just understanding where we have to go 
that helps us take that first step. And the fact that we have so many people in different aspects of healthcare as well as biomedical research who are recognizing this to me is a note of optimism that there are many of those who are going to take that challenge to move forward as we try to provide opportunities for health equity for everyone in the United States. So I thank each of you for your wonderful contributions and look forward to interacting with you offline uh, as we have many areas of research and interest in common. So thank you very much. It was good to be with uh, all of you. Thank you. Thank you all for your perspectives. Thank you. Thank you for a fascinating and important discussion.